Hi, I'm Alice Leibowitz. I'm the founder of Conversations Against Fascism, and you're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hey, and I'm Robin Renee. This is episode 145, and welcome to our new season. Yes, and today Robin interviews activist Alice Leibowitz about her journey and rising fascism and how personal growth can make us all effective activists. And at some point I'll figure out how to talk again <laughs> we're but getting before, back in this yeah, yeah oh my god back to it. <laughs> but before that we geek out about the awesome barbie movie yes <laughs> you can find us on facebook instagram and the platform formerly known as twitter <laughs> <laughs> and we're everywhere we're at leftscape and we're also on blue sky as individuals and i swear i'll actually show up and start doing things there I'm actually there. I'm I'm interacting with people and and I get like an invite every week or so that all of my other friends are glomming on, but I think the next one I get I will put Leftscape on there as well, but then that means there's two accounts I have to maintain. So who knows. <laughs> all um, right. Well. <laughs> but anyway, I, I will give you all that info at the end too. All of our Yes. Yeah, have to listen to the end to be able to contact us personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But please help support the podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. We post exclusive content there monthly. So join us at patreon.com slash leftscape. Oh, we've uh, been away. We've been away for a month, two months. I don't even remember yeah, now. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been part vacation, part planning. We did a lot to sort of get the new season together. and But it was nice to, it was nice to take a little break not have to be immersed in the news. Like I still am kind of a news junkie, but I, I didn't have to assimilate anything and figure it, <laughs> figure out how we're going to talk about it. So yeah, kind of I've been, healthy. I've been avoiding the news and oh my God, this morning was like just a tsunami for me, but yeah. Yeah. So we, <laughs> I have, we have a rewind today and this is really hard. I interviewed Aretta Cuff in episode 68 and I really do hope you listen to it it's called history and hope and she passed away this morning at the age of 87 in Voorhees New Jersey and she's just was an amazing woman and someone I've known literally all my life um so I guess I am in shock Wendy says I'm in shock I must be probably <laughs> but I'm doing things and talking and whatnot so yeah I'm but, I'm actually really impressed that you're able to function today <laughs> so yeah. and i hope maybe we'll re either repost or or something i want to i want people to hear her her voice and her uh, her thoughts yes. about race and growing up in well she was born in 1936 so it's a whole other time she, to hear about it was she had a lot of history she was talking about in that interview 
as yeah. I remember. And yeah, we can just we can pull the interview out of the entire show so it'll be easier for everybody to access it. And we'll do that. Yes. Thank you. I, you know, it was the summer. My husband was on vacation for the last two weeks, so he was underfoot a lot. Yeah, this underfoot. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> no, he wasn't like laying at the top of the stairs like the cats do, okay. trying to kill me. But you know, it was, it was like you were. I'm trying to get things done, and he's on vacation, so he's thinking, no, nah, we don't have to do anything. It's like no. We have things to do. But anyway, so we're going to do, we're doing a little bit different this season. Instead of random facts, we are, we are calling this mini segment, This Fortnight I Learned. And this fortnight I learned that at one point in like around 900,000 years ago, the human ancestors in Africa were pushed to the brink of extinction which made my, my eyebrows are still up from this. A study in Science Magazine that was published in August suggests a drastic reduction of the population of our ancestors well before our species Homo sapiens emerged. The population of breeding individuals was reduced to just 1,280 and did not expand again for another 117,000 years. That's and wild. That's blowing me away because I didn't think a population that small was viable like in all of the science fiction stories i read about people going and colonizing other planets they needed more than that so i don't know maybe this is going to shake up a lot of things and yikes you almost <laughs> didn't make it and uh <laughs> yeah that's wild i would like to hear read more about that that's that's really yeah. interesting well this fortnight i learned something about AAVE, African American Vernacular English or, or Black American English, however you want to call it. And it was just a revelation. You know, I was listening to another podcast called Fucking Cancelled, which I love. It's a, it's a great podcast to, to listen to and <laughs> think about a lot of the issues on the left that, you know, that we talk about and they, they go into depth about a lot of different things. But they are in Canada and they were talking about how AAVE could be seen because it's a true dialect with you know consistent grammar and it's every bit a dialect as, as any other but it's you know traditionally just thought of as like oh that's just poor english like you're just ignorant you're not speaking correctly you know and their take was this should be respected and taught and even even protected by the government like in like if you're in quebec you have the right to access information in your native language. And if you speak French, then that's French, you know, but, but they're basically saying like we have in the U S we have three very strong language traditions. You know, we've got English, AAVE and Spanish. And why aren't those all seen as respectable, allowable, ways of speaking like a legitimate it's a legitimate language it's a legitimate language and it sounds so stupid to be like recognize realizing that but i think i was so used to hearing people sort of denigrate it that i never thought that the, the possibility that it could be treated literally oppositely than it's treated currently yeah well i mean we all know why it's not treated 
like a language now. I mean, it's, sure. you know, we don't have to spell that out. No, but. no. But it's, uh, it was actually, you know, how, however far-fetched in terms of where we are politically right now, just the seed of the idea that could be planted around yeah. that was, was really good to hear someone else looking from the outside yes. saying that. You know? Yes. You know, I, I think what isn't Creole also recognized as a, an actual dialect or language, too? As, I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I think there's more AAVE speakers than there are Creole speakers. True. True. So, you know, I mean, this is like the same argument that was used to get the pagan headstones because there were faiths that the pentacle as a, as a headstone, because there were other religions with many fewer adherents who had their symbols on headstones, the military headstones. That right. was that, that whole campaign that we won 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah. You know. That was a powerful thing to, to achieve and work on too. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I would actually, I would like to study it and, and learn to speak it and not, be looked at with side eye <laughs> right and that was the thing that anyone can learn a, it's a it's if a legitimate language or dialect anyone can learn and should be encouraged to learn and that was another thing that people don't really even think about in our in our uh cultures you know so yeah yes all so right. that all right I, that's what i learned all right yes <laughs> and now <laughs> okay I'm going to, I'm taking full responsibility for the news items today <laughs> because there was so much and I'm only, I really was cherry picking and, and here they are. <laughs> here is all of the news that we could possibly handle today. So welcome to the Tuesday that feels like Monday because we had yesterday off, it was, or actually, by the time you hear this, it'll be Wednesday. So my clever thing, I'm just going to- It'll be off. Thursday. It'll be Thursday. So because it's everything's away. off because we're doing uh, this a okay. day late. Yes, okay. Okay, anyway, I hope your Labor Day was fun. Uh, there are still unions, union workers who are out on strike. The Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors, the Screen Actors Guild, they're still on strike in Hollywood. They're starting to make a little bit of headway with independent studios, but the big players like the streaming services and, you know, Disney and Warner Brothers, blah, blah, blah. They're still holding out because they're all they're all part of a specific bargaining group together. And a lot of the people I've been following on social media are, are saying it would be it would behoove the studios to break away from the streaming services because they're their actual goals may be different because like right now no work is getting done in Hollywood and also the auto workers are currently in negotiation for a new contract and they're using I think their endorse their possible endorsement of President Biden as a as a leverage point in that also and in terms of unions and how popular they are with with the people of the country that that there was a poll recently that found that the younger people the gen z people are approve approve of unions at 64.3 percent 
compared to 60.5% for millennials and 57.2% for baby boomers. And once again, Gen X is left out. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> you could go yell at NPR for that. All I don't know why, why do they do that? <laughs> I don't That's know, really but it's funny. pretty consistent. <laughs> wow. Okay, so 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 not only is there buy erasure, there's Gen X erasure. <laughs> I'm just Shit. invisible. What can he do? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was that was cool. Um, and, and we have a link. We can learn more about the about the strikes as well. And seventy thousand people were stranded at Burning Man last week. And it rained and it basically turned into the bad part of Woodstock. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've heard different things from different people. I was in touch with Dr. Howe of the of the Church of the Subgenius, and he was mm. pretty miserable. He was like, yeah, we're 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 rained out and I would really like to leave now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> his, his show went well, but it was, you know, it wasn't fun. Other people were. We're like, yeah, we got wet, but fuck it. Let's make some mimosas or whatever. So I, I've been seeing different, <laughs> different reports. I, well, I'm sure it was, a, you know, it was a challenge and it looked insane. Like the, the, the lines of people leaving. Well, it was like people, it was so muddy. The car, cars would get stuck. Yeah. And I was, when I was a kid, we had gone for the day to the Dulles air show, which you know, was you watching, you know, jets do fancy aeronautical things. And there was this huge rainstorm that came through that turned the entire parking area into a mud pit. And it took us six hours to get out of there. And, you know, and this was just a one day after, wasn't even an overnight event. This was just a day trip kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, you don't have food with you. There were there were no bathrooms. A three-hour tour, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, and well, I, you know, we were. I was like seven or eight years old, and my brother was a year younger than that. And so, you know, my parents are sitting there in the in the station wagon trying to get out of this mud hole, and we're you know cranky and hungry and need to go use the bathroom, <laughs> and it was just miserable. And it kind of hearing what I about what was going on at Burning Man kind of reminded me of that. It's like no fun to get stuck in the mud. And I, and I know somebody died. I know there was oh, one death. And I'm sorry to hear that. I hadn't heard that yet. Yeah. No. And I, and it was weird because on, on blue sky, people were just talking about a lot of different things. And I didn't understand what was what they were talking about about the rain and the water and libertarians and people it's like oh yeah you're a libertarian until you get you know a year's worth of rain in one in 12 hours and then and then uh and then you know you can't have your avocado toasters i don't know it was it was just a lot of people bitching about all different things i didn't know what the hell i said shit something must have happened but what right because <laughs> nobody said burning man i didn't know what they were talking about because I'd been away from the news. Wow. Uh, well, I'm sure I'll hear stories. <laughs> oh, see. I'm sure there I will hope, be stories yeah. when everybody yeah. gets out of there. I think they can leave today, which is Tuesday. Yes, I um, did see some of the the lines, like the aerial view of the lines of cars trying to exit, which is was frightening. <laughs> yeah, I also didn't realize Burning Man was getting that kind of attendance. 
I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was that big. Yeah. Because that's a lot of people. Yeah. So in other news, this is something that's going on in Texas that that I didn't know about until I started looking at news today. This is one of the most high-profile legal proceedings in recent Texas history. It starts Tuesday as the impeachment trial of Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's a Republican, gets underway in the state Senate. Paxton was impeached by House legislators in May on offenses including bribery, obstruction of justice, and misuse of public funds. The Republican-held chamber passed 20 articles of impeachment by a 121 to 23 vote. So this guy must have really done some shit in order to get (laughs) that many legislators pissed off at him. That is really true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So... So, I mean, usually yeah, we'll I'm, hear more for that, for that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I stick to New Jersey news, but I figured let's let's see what's happening in a state that I refuse to visit for until other things change. <laughs> there you go. Well, in cool news, September is by visibility month. So we do have a chance to be visible this month, despite what <laughs> despite, despite my generation and my bias. Uh, hopefully <laughs> it will be seen. It's not Gen X Visibility Month. I think we need to do that, too. That would be funny, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so there's, I know that, you know, a lot of the bi organizations do all kinds of different things. September 23rd is Bi Visibility Day, where there are a lot of specific events, but things happen all month long. So we will definitely mention some of the things that we learn about in our social media. And... Okay, this was supposed to be my my funny news piece, but it's not quite the end. But this is in Wales, in the United Kingdom. Burglars are possibly leaving gnomes in people's front gardens to determine if the resident is home. So there's been this spate of these little guard. Well, they're not outdoor gnomes. They're little, I guess, stuffed plush gnomes that people are just finding in their front yards now. And the Welsh police are suspecting that this is a ploy by potential burglars to see if the resident is home. If they, because if they are home, they would move the gnome. So that is I, diabolical. <laughs> I'm not sure I could resist the gnome if I saw it. <laughs> oh man, that is definitely different. I yeah. I, it's, it's, are you a victim of a random gnoming? It's like <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and sixteen young plaintiffs sued the state of Montana and won after asserting that the U.S. state violated their constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. This is the first case challenging state and national climate and energy policies to make it to trial in the U.S. and is now the first in which the plaintiffs were victorious. And that is really some interesting news. I mean, it's like the right to a clean and healthful environment sounds so obvious. And being in the U.S., I would assume we don't have that right, which is really <laughs> very sad. Well, it's let me let me also jump in and say this is not the federal constitution. This right. is the state of Montana's constitution. Put that in there. And I bet they're regretting that now. I kind of wish other state constitutions had the right to a clean envi- and healthy environment to live in. 
I mean, it's so basic, you know, but yeah. it's not, it's not the interest of a lot of powers that be, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And we will have links to all these news stories in our show notes. And I recommend going over to that article and, and reading up about the judges, I think, 103 page decision. So I, I think that judge was very angry at the state of Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's all the news I can handle, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have that one last thing we need to we need to oh, yes. we need to mention the passing of Jimmy Buffett. Yes. RAP and I I just want to say that as a member of the yacht rock community <laughs> like he he's made fun of a lot because he was made fun <laughs> of in the in the series uh in the web series and you know, it, it's a funny joke, but it, honestly, I, I, I know a lot of people who follow him and found that kind of tropical escapism exactly what they needed. So, you know, I, I feel for, for the parrot heads. And, and a lot of people have a lot of good thoughts about him, too, you were saying. People really yes, knew him. Yes, yeah. I, I have been reading accounts of, like, I have a friend who works stage crew, I guess, at, at, a, at a concert venue. And... She was saying that that everyone on staff at this particular venue loved when Jimmy Buffett would come to town because he would do, I guess he would be there for three days and he would do a concert at the beginning and the end and the middle day he would take off. But everybody's getting paid and, and the food they bring in is just is for everybody and not just the the the, the traveling roadies or whatever they treated. He treated his staff and, and the the staff that he's working with at the venues really, really well. And other people, I mean, I haven't heard anything bad about him. And apparently he was a billionaire, which I didn't know. And it's, he, he's, a, I guess, a billionaire who isn't an asshole. Right. <laughs> and I guess that's, it, it, so it's possible. It, it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it could be. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know. I can't, I can't see if you keep a billion dollars. If, I mean, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't be a billionaire because I'd be spending it and giving it to people. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like he was, he was a really decent person and it's sad when a decent person dies because there's so, so many people who aren't decent who are still alive. Yeah. All right. I'll be quiet about that. <laughs> okay. All right. Pete. And that's all the news that we can handle. Oh, my God. One more time Before you wake up in the wild In your eyes I see your flowers slowly dying Together with the Nature Conservancy, you have the power to make a difference. For unspoiled nature, for beautiful wildlife, and for people everywhere. Together, we can find a way to ensure that all life on Earth can thrive. world needs us now. Every day, we lose more lands, waters, and the wild species that depend on them. 
To learn more, visit nature.org today. We are going to have an awesome geekscape today. Yes, it is geekly awesome. We have both seen the Barbie movie, so we're going to talk about it. Finally, I was I was lagging behind the rest of the world, but well, I, I, I also yeah. I also was lagging behind. I mean, it was one of the films I saw this summer, and I wasn't going to go because I am an anti-Barbie, or I I should say I was an anti-Barbie person as an adult. And then I read an article in The Wild Hunt, I think somebody pointed me to it, that by Meg Ellison, and the title of that is called Barbie is the New Inanna. And when I read that, I said, okay, now I have to go, because (laughs) as Robin will have remembered, I think, that the coven we used to be in did a ritual drama called the Shapatu of Ishtar, which was about Ishtar slash Inanna's descent into the underworld. And we're pretty damn familiar with that myth. And also the article quoted some of the, in Hedawana's poetry that I had turned into a song. This, the who will plow her vulva is the title of this song. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, they were, they were pretty racy back in, you know, 3000 BC. Uh, (laughs) So they said, okay, fine. You've convinced me to go see the Barbie movie. So I called up my daughter and we went to a, you know, morning show (laughs) during the week on a Thursday. And, and I was very happy. I was very surprised that I really liked the movie. And now I'll shut up and let you talk for a minute. (laughs) Sure. You know, it was interesting. I don't think I would have seen an ancient myth in it. I I mean, it's definitely like it is a mythical tale the way it's written, you know, for sure. I don't know that I would have thought of that one. But when you said we have to count the number of stations, you know, they go stages they go through to get to. The, oh, you did? Oh, thank you. And I believe it's correct. I think, I think it's seven. I think it's California oh is God. number seven. So. <gasps> oh, my God. So this is kind <laughs> of right. insular conversation. But, <laughs> but I do want to say, and so for people who aren't familiar with Ishtar mythology, um, <laughs> I liked this movie. I didn't love it, but I okay. liked it. I think... It's so like the things that I like and uh, the things about it that I like are also the things that kind of uh, were a bit of a much in a way. And it's, it's so self-conscious about its look at cultural issues mm-hmm. that in one way it's sort of wink and nod, very obvious, being very obvious about we are going to talk about issues you know what i mean <laughs> but that's also what it makes it humorous but it also makes it a little bit heavy-handed i guess you could say okay but, i can see that yeah but i think but it, it was funny i mean oh, yeah being heavy-handed and funny is i can kind of deal with that oh i also should warn everybody this will be a spoiler full spoiler discussion spoiler <laughs> yes 
So, you know, it's not, it, it definitely wasn't bad. It was, it was, I like the way it, it wasn't simple in the sense that it could have just been like, all the, all the boys are bad at the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or, or it could have just been, you know, 90 minutes of, of product placement, yes. like in the Simpsons, <laughs> it's like how to buy action hero, man. That was the cartoon that was up for an award in one of the episodes. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it wasn't, it wasn't simple. I think part of, you know, really the, the, one of the big points of it was that they needed to find their complexity. Yeah. And there was no simple answer to everything, you know? Yeah. And that, yeah. that was um, good. It could have, you could have made it a lot dopier and more. And as you said, just sort of product placement, sort of just a yeah, zany I, no, adventure, is, but it was deeper than that. There are so many levels to this thing. And I, and I do have to, I, I have to go on about, you know, I, I went into this movie with a little bit of an anti-Barbie chip on my shoulder. And it's like the writers and the whoever was involved in the creation of this piece, they took that into account because they, they obviously, they have to know that there's a lot of women that don't like Barbie because like when I was a kid, it you didn't have like the 80 million Barbies that have all these different jobs. There was, you know, mommy and well, there was the, you know, you could, you could be a nurse or a teacher or a mommy. Those were the three roles accepted in by society for women to take, you know, and if you were anything else, you were kind of, you know, you were pushing against the patriarchy in a serious way. And so the teenage girl in the movie has this attitude, you know, she, thinks Barbie's stupid and and sexist and blah, blah, blah. And she basically addressed every single one of my objections. And it was in the movie and it's like, oh, okay, so now I can enjoy this movie because they've addressed my objections. So I was like, I wanna like give major props to the writers for that because otherwise, you know, I would have just been grouchy for most of it, but, but that was like great. Kate McKinnon as weird Barbie. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. Was like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got home and I immediately posted on Facebook, Kate McKinnon is a national treasure. So yeah. it was, she was, she was perfect. I agree <laughs> 100% with that. And it's so funny too, because everyone had or or knows that weird Barbie. Like that was, that well, was a very real thing. made one of those. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> exactly it's just really funny yeah no she was brilliant and just cast perfectly for that yes um, yes uh what else oh god i don't know i, I well I, you know what i like the naivete of the barbie land in the beginning yes that they just had no idea like it was sort of it was humorous and to think like oh well all, all the problems have now been solved you know <laughs> Women are all power, power, have all the power and it's wonderful, you know, and, and it's just like, oh, yeah. And, and it's it's so funny, but in a way, there are people who sort of walk with that belief system about various things in oh, the world. Yes, yes, yes. Now so that we've had, true. we had a black president, so that's all done. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and sometimes, <sighs> you know, people don't want to see but sometimes people i literally don't see until mm. something cracks the indeed you know, cracks yes. the, surf the the 
veil or whatever you want to say. Yes, like for I'll give you. Sorry to bring Star Trek up in this, but <laughs> it's um, a geekscape. It's okay. I know. I, I you know ha, can I have a conversation and not bring up a science fiction show? I am not sure. I'm gonna um, find a way to bring Devo into the conversation. Well, do it. Do it. Uh, or yacht rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could. I'll do. Okay. Anyway. I, but in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode to sail beyond the stars, which Benjamin Sisko, the captain, is having like a fever dream or something. And, and suddenly we're back in like the late 50s, early 60s. And and his he's and every all the actors are there without their makeup on, which is I love. But they're talking it, it, on the surface. It's like you're seeing how race relations were in the 50s and 60s. And I always thought it was a powerful episode. but when I watched it after, you know, during the summer of 2020, when BLM exploded, mm. it's like, oh, they're not talking about the 60s. They're talking about fucking now. And it took me 20 years to for it final to for this episode to finally get into my brain and say nothing has changed. And mm. and they put it back 40, 50 years to to make everybody comfortable with it, but nothing's fucking changed. And, you know, because at, at one point at the end, like this young man gets killed by the police and, and you know, it, it's nasty. It, it, mm. it's, it was everything that was happening in the summer of 2020, you know, right. yeah. and, and it was like, I, I kind of felt a little bad that it took me this long to figure it out. But they were, you know, and, and it was like, you know, I, I, I know now that you guys have been screaming about this for my entire life and <laughs> I haven't heard you until now. And I'm really sorry, <laughs> you know, but I think, I think there's that kind of a level in the Barbie movie that it's, you know, but it's not, it's not a, a plays that give you the more a morality play. Morality play. Oh, right. Yes, <laughs> not a morality play. No. The Deep Space Nine episode kind of was a little bit, but it was my favorite episode of the whole series. But anyway, but yeah, but when like the one thing and here we can bring in the music when when Barbie is traveling through <laughs> the different worlds. Oh, yeah. and I have to let me let me backtrack. Yeah, the anonymous is Inanna, as she's descending through the un to the underworld, she has to go through seven gates, and at each gate she gives up something it's important to her. And and when, I will also say, when you're doing a ritual drama with your coven that has to go, we the coven actually went through seven gates itself, not realizing we were doing that until I think we hit gate three or four, and I go, Hey, I think we're kind of going through our own gates here making this production. But <laughs> because man, there was some stuff happening when we yeah. were doing that. And and the um, purpose is to get to some kind of core or depth or yes, you know, yes, deeper place, um, whatever. However, so you, that however was, you characterize it, yeah. That was why that the number 7 in the different worlds they traveled through, I wanted to know because that would be the correlation with the myth. But anyway, when Barbie's first going. I think they're playing closer to fine. Yes. In the car. Yeah. That's and, so and, cute and funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that cracked me up. And then when they started driving back after Ken had fucked everything up, it was was it was it Matchbox Twenty? I uh, wanna push you around. You? Yes. Yeah. It was a, like a funny. bro song. Yes. <laughs> and 
when they fixed it, what was the, was there another song? Or did I, it, it didn't go back to Closer to Fine, it went to something else. At one point, I know that the Barbie designer woman and her, and the daughter who didn't like Barbie, they were, they were, she was singing it and the daughter started singing along and it was kind of like, ah, because at first she was just like, I'm not singing that, that's stupid, you know? <laughs> and then she was kind of, so I can't remember when that happened, but that was, that was cute. That was very cool. So yeah. none of the songs in this film are Yacht Rock, right? Or are they? <laughs> I don't believe I heard any Yacht Rock. Neither of those are Yacht, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for bringing that in. <laughs> I had... <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yacht or Yacht. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of what else to say about it. I mean, obviously, like the Kens, when they took over, it was like comical and it was not only comical but all of the barbies fell into they like fell a, into a role subservient fawning role yeah yeah kind of i guess the kens were kind of like that at the beginning it was well yeah because the main ken was like i only i only have meaning if she looks at me right because and that yeah yeah and that was actually that was uh there was a guy who broke up with his girlfriend after seeing the movie this is you know because there was once the movie first came out i'm sure everybody's seen all of the writings about like girls or you know women are breaking up with their boyfriends <laughs> because they're recognizing stuff or but this guy recognized that he was basing his whole identity in you know as as a reflection of his girlfriend and he realized that wasn't healthy and he broke up with her to get his shit together and i thought that that was really amazing yeah that you know that he that he saw that in himself yeah I mean, that's interesting yeah <laughs> my husband hasn't seen the barbie movie yet i guess yeah. we're waiting for streaming and i'll make him watch it and then i'll then i'll have his reactions and then we'll see we'll see how well this 30-year marriage is uh <laughs> <laughs> It's lasted. I feel pretty confident uh, that you, neither of you, are in in either of these roles. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I yeah. mean, if I was going to be anybody in that movie, I would be Weird Barbie. So yeah, <laughs> so I totally want to be her. Right. That's my role model now. <laughs> to be able to do splits like that. <laughs> yeah. Really. Oh man. So I was going to say there was something funny about the Kens understanding of what patriarchy was and their interpretation <laughs> of it was so <laughs> brotastic you know <laughs> so it was it made it humorous but it also really like taking took those roles to like the extreme and it, and it well, made yeah. it funny you know so yeah well yes they like took over and made the barbie dream house like their own bro i forget they had a really long name for it which was funny and <laughs> And then the roles that the Barbies fell into were like, oh, let me pour your tea. Like, it was just so, oh, my God, <laughs> it was horrible, but but funny. So what did so, you yeah. think of, I don't know. What did you think of it when it, when it takes it out of time and place? And she's, like, meeting with the creator of oh, Barbie and talking oh, oh, to those sort of moments. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's i i think it's good for people for for people who are either younger or 
aren't very introspective or thoughtful because it's basically explaining what your your takeaways from the movie right it's which is fine you know it's like if you haven't picked up on all of the the subtle clues we've been giving you here are the clues (laughs) yeah but that's what happens when you meet your creator and you can ask them questions that they might answer you know that's like why am i here what what is my purpose that's That's if you haven't figured that out for yourself you know i guess having somebody tell you would be helpful i don't i mean that's kind of why people go to tarot readers and shit right 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 (laughs) okay i'll accept that i mean yeah part of me was like this is it's fine you know i wasn't like oh my god this is wonderful but i think it served a purpose and it did yeah okay I well, I enjoyed it a lot. I and it's because I think it's because I was laughing so much. You know, if you make something funny, it just it it's it's a great it's a it's a mood elevator. You know, I went I left the movie feeling great. Mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to when I saw the first the first half of that double Avengers movie. Oh, don't even talk about it. I know that was bad. Yeah, that was that, bad for I, you. that's the first time I left a movie feeling like shit. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was good, and and I and I felt like it was worth spending the ticket price, even you know, even with the senior discount, <laughs> it's still eighteen bucks to go to the. And I know that's not a lot of money to people. Like my daughter's like, ah, oh, that's not all, because I I had a, a lunch that was like thirty five dollars a person, and for but the food was amazing. Um, and my daughter was like not having sticker shock over it. And then I'm realizing, okay, I'm, this is, this is my version of, well, when I was a kid, bread was five cents a loaf. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm at, I'm at that point in my journey into decrepitude or whatever, but cause I remember when movies were two fifty, you know, right, <laughs> or a buck and a quarter if you got there in the morning. So $18 for a movie ticket is a lot of money. And it's also if you can buy the DVD for like 40 bucks and it costs you 50 bucks to go see it in the movies, like, eh. you know, it's like, is this? It's like, when I look at movies, I go, is this worth $50 for me to go see now or should I wait? And, and a lot of times it's like, I'm okay with waiting. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad I saw this one. I hardly go to movies, but sometimes it's like such a cultural phenomenon i'm like okay i guess i've got to see this you know yeah so and also i think at this point in time i believe that this movie has made more than oh like some transformer movie that was like the top rating the top box office gross it's it's over a billion dollars worldwide so I think that that's great. And I'm also hoping that means there's going to be more films greenlit with women behind the wheel, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I also hope, I, and I know that the writer's strike is still happening and I hope the studios can like figure out, this is a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> writer's strike. <laughs> But that's happening and still, and I, I want more entertainment and I want writers and actors to be paid commensurate with their talent, you know, True. <laughs> whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm looking forward to when it's available on a streaming service that I'm already paying for. So it's like, quote, free, unquote. And I'll watch it multiple times and pick up more nuances. There were usually... a lot of statements and, and, and side comments and things that I, I, I've got in the moment, but they're not, I'm not recalling them right now. So right. it would be interesting to hear. Yeah, there's a lot, you know, yeah. be, uh, between like political commentary and just a little bit of cultural, just funny things that happen. You know, it's yeah, it, and there's, there's probably, a lot in it. There's probably a lot of business that you're not going to even notice the first time through. Right. You know, I, I just have that feeling that this is one of those movies that every time you watch it, you're going to see something else you didn't notice the first time. So I'm looking forward to binging it a couple of times <laughs> once it's streaming. <laughs> one of the things I noticed that I, I thought was kind of cool about it, I think it does it. The movie did some gentle razzing of various sides of the political spectrum. I don't know if you felt that. Uh-huh. I did. I did. Yeah. I thought that was cool. It wasn't so, like, I, I guess I said before, it wasn't so cut and dry. It's not sort of creating a world, well, like, this is the wrong world and this is the right world and we're just, here's how to fix it. It's sort of like, okay, there's funny things that could be changed in either, in all places. And right. so some of the sort of the funny blindness and uh, of the, in Barbie world about like oh everything's perfect that was funny i think like and some of know, the blindness in the corporate in yes. the corporate boardroom which was all men deciding exactly. about stuff like what girls and women like yeah without asking anyone in that group right and that exactly that is something that happens in the real world quite a lot <laughs> exactly and, and I think like I am Knuff is just brilliant and hilarious and it's sort of it's sort of making fun of us our our sort of demographic in a way you know what I mean? but it's also true so it's it was yeah. interesting it was just uh, that part was clever I think they sort of played that well so yeah I just wanted to say that yes and I am Knuff so <laughs> that's right <laughs> so yeah that's it's it it's a good movie i'm glad it's making a fortune for them and i want to see other things that are as good not necessarily yeah. toy based <laughs> right and uh that does uh, our barbie movie talk i guess <laughs> yeah which I'm very excited about. Alice is a longtime activist and facilitator who provides support for progressives and change makers to find hope and keep their sanity in the face of rising fascism and other global crises. Her coaching facilitation firm, Conversations Against Fascism, provides love, power, creativity, and focus in response to the question, how are we going to do what it takes to meet this moment in history? So welcome, Alice. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Hi, Robin. Great to see you. <laughs> yes. So there are so many ways we could begin this interview. I've known you since probably the mid-90s, I think, mm -hmm. as a very powerful and determined activist. And I'd like to share, I'd like you to share about your activist journey in a bit. But to start, I think it would be a good idea just to hear you define fascism and where you see it rising most prominently today it i mean it feels like it could be it, uh, obvious answers to this uh -huh. question but i think it's important to make it 
clear. Explicit, sure. So I define fascism as authoritarian. So it's a few few components. One is authoritarianism. One is hyper-patriotism. And mixed with that, a charismatic leader. So it's not just being hyper-patriotic country, but it's also hyper-loyalty to a particular leader who's seen as embodying the country. And then racism and violence, right? So when those three come together, obviously the most famous fascist movement was the Nazis and, you know, totalitarian, authoritarian, taking over everybody's life, no opposition allowed, very much coalesced around the charismatic leadership of Hitler and organized around the the violent genocide of the Jews, the Roma, and uh, other unpopular groups. And fascism doesn't always go quite that far. And I see the, you know, the three components. And where I'm most aware of it is in the, the Trumpist movement in the U.S. I know that there, that fascism is also rising in Asia and Latin America and Europe. And, and I'm not as much in the loop about what's going on in those places. Okay. Do you have any sense of why this moment is happening globally? Uh, or specifically in the U.S. I, if that's yeah, what, what I have less of an know, understanding but... of why it's happening globally. And, it, you know, I heard about it in Europe before I saw it coming to the U.S. What I see in the U.S. is there, this big reaction to 9-11 and, you know, just that 9-11 and the quote-unquote war on terror has just allowed all kinds of basic civil liberties violations that just wouldn't have been allowed before. And instead of them being temporary, they've been building and building and building, right? Starting with the Patriot Act and then indefinite detention and and using drones on American citizens and this and that and the other. Um, and the, you know, the NSA spying and just concentration of power in the executive and power being taken away from the people has been very rapid. So that's as far as the authoritarian side. And then as far as the racist side, you know, the Trump is very much a backlash to Obama being becoming president. You know, a lot of people have said that that was a big part of the uh, Tea Party movement was people reacting with upset to there being a black president. So I think that's part of it. And then, you know, it, I think there are economic factors, like big economic factors. Like there was a post-war boom after World War II and it's been on the bust for, you know, 40 years. And then more specific economic factors like the 2008 um, stock market crash. And, you know, people are looking for scapegoats and also just the American empire or the American moment is failing. I, I can't say the American empire is failing because we could go fascist and be like a more of a literal empire. But yeah, you know, we aren't leading the world. You know, Trump is not making that part up. We're not leading the world anymore. And, right. you know, as the as the edges of that fantasy crumble, people are, you know, trying to prop it up at any cost. Right. I, I, I laughed because I, I remembered him saying, well, we're being laughed at. And it's like, well, 
we were being laughed at because of him, even right. if he was right about the non-leadership role, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, very um, funny, not funny, funny actually. Not funny, yeah. And right. and I'm clear that we're that what's happening in the U.S. is both supported by and supporting rise, rising fascism in other countries. And I, as I say, I don't know as much about this, you know, the sources on a global level. Right. Right. Understood. I'm curious to hear a little bit of your backstory, you know, some of the things that you've done as an activist, some of I know about some, our audience doesn't know really, so it would be great to hear and how you arrived at this, what you're doing now. Yeah. So I became an activist when, in, when I was in college in the late eighties and early nineties, I mostly gravitated to the bisexual movement, which is where I met you a few years later and the peace movement. And at a certain point, I think it was the Iraq war in 2003 when, you know, there were some very powerful protests against the war and, you know, no impact, not even mentioned in the news. I kind of took a break from the peace movement and was like, I want to work on things where I know I can move a needle. And so I was really involved in, in bioactivism, especially, I guess, 96 to 2005. And then I actually retired from activism, or so I thought, and worked on, uh, started a facilitation business with my best friend and was doing facilitation mostly for nonprofits, also for some social justice activists. And that was very joyful. I really felt like I was being used for what I'm best at. And then in 2011, I was, I was, that my girlfriend at the time was involved in incarceration reform. And she told me, do you know that the prisoners in California who are in solitary confinement are doing a hunger strike? I was like, what? I sit here thinking I don't have enough power, you know, to, I don't have enough leverage to make a difference. And these are people who like get to leave their room one hour a day and can't turn the lights off at night. And they're, they're still finding a way to protest. And so I, I got involved in supporting, I organized a, a local rolling fast letter writing campaign to the prisoners, letter writing campaign to, I believe it was the state of California. I don't remember to, you know, the warden. And then I was kind of back. And then a month later, the Occupy Wall Street movement took off and I got very involved in the local Occupy in Hartford, Connecticut and was living at the camp encampment for a couple of weeks, was treasurer, was facilitating meetings, was de-escalating conflict. Our encampment only lasted two months, but our Occupy, like as a, a group, went on for another, I don't know, three or four years. So that was 2011 to 2014. And then in 2014, I moved to the Pittsburgh area and started a, a money-free economy, like mutual aid network in my, my little neighborhood, which was very cool. I'd been inspired by money-free economies as a kind of activism where it doesn't, where we don't need permission from the, from any large bodies. It's not about influencing the government or influencing the corporations. It's like, we can do this ourselves and you can't take it away from us. That sounds like a topic on in of itself. We might have to have you back just to learn about I that would, at some point. I'd be happy to talk about that. And then, yeah. and while I was there, I did some environmental justice work because we were, our little town was targeted by a couple different fracking projects that 
we were able to defeat. I also was on the board of my food co-op. That's an interesting topic too, the corporatization of food co-ops. And I was involved in helping turn the tide on, on that, at least locally. And then I was getting ready to move back to Connecticut and I just, well, just specifically talking about the origins of conversations against fascism, it's kind of almost, it's not really a separate story, it's its own story. So when Trump was running for office in 2016, it, like from the beginning, I was like, sounds like a fascist, right? Like, you now I was like, okay, so his main platform is racism against immigrants. And he is a Republican who's not afraid to, to talk about raising taxes. He took back that raising taxes thing pretty early, but I'm like, oh, that, you know, that sounds like the fascist that the libertarians talk about. And then as people started being more and more, more excited about him, but more worshipful toward him, it became very clear that he was not just another racist politician, right? That he, that there was something that he was he wasn't just aspiring to be president of the United States, right? That, that, that there was, that there was more to his agenda. And, and like a lot of people, I didn't think he was going to win. And I, unlike a lot of people I knew, especially a lot of sort of mainstream Democrats, I was clear it was possible, right? Not implausible. And he was, that he wasn't a joke and it was a very serious concern. So once he did get elected, I was, I was very scared. And just to back up, you know, I'm, I'm half Jewish and I was raised in the shadow of the, the Holocaust. My father's family was wiped out in the Holocaust and I'd been exposed to a variety of stories, basically cautionary tales saying, you know, well, the saying is never again, you know, never again, we can never let this happen again. And a lot of cautionary tales about like, if you see it coming, you'll be tempted to not take action. You know, it's very easy to just go about your life like the good Germans and just keep busy and see things fall apart around you because it's going to be a little bit at a time. It's not all, which is not, was not the case in Rwanda, but often like these things just build up. It's like, Oh, look, it's the Patriot Act. Oh, look, it's indefinite detention. Oh, look, it's, you know, people being imprisoned for being anarchists. So look, it's, you know, and, and even with Trump, it's, you know, oh, okay, we've got an immigrant ban. Okay, well, we'll take it back just enough. Oh, look, we've, you know, we're, we've got kids in cages. Oh, but look, Obama started kids in cages, right? So it's like, little bit by little bit. And so I just put a lot of pressure on myself, like, Alice, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. By the time it's too late, it's going to be too late. Right? By the time it's unambiguous, it's going to be too late. And I, I didn't know what to do. Right. I was like, I've got to do something, got to do something, got to do something. But all that pressure was actually having me not do anything. And I knew I didn't want to just attend big marches. I didn't want to write my senators, but I wasn't sure what I did, what they what I did want to do. So after the 2020 election, like I had, I had played full out overdid my time and energy trying to get Biden elected, even though I thought Biden was going to thought knew was aware that Biden was going to be a disaster of his, you know, himself. And then, but not, 
as bad a disaster, right? And then after yeah. the election, there was no, the results were inconclusive for a few weeks. And I was just overwhelmed by stress. I was like, I can't take not knowing, right? And so I just, I, you know, I'd recently discovered Zoom and I just called, made a Facebook event, invited a bunch of my friends to just talk about what was going on. And just sort of a decompression, just, sort of a exactly experience. just to decompress yeah. and like eight people came and just like talked about what was going on, what our feelings were, what our needs were, what we were hoping would happen or yeah, what our wishes were. And not only like did it decompress me and everyone, but it just really was it really created almost a sacred space between us. And, you know, I had, I knew I was going to be moving from Pittsburgh back to Connecticut soon and was looking to be looking for my next project. And I was like, Oh, it's going to be this. I'm going to be talking to activists about fascism and finding the mindset that's going to have us be effective. Nice. So I've heard social analysts, like some of whom I really admire, be kind of skeptical of personal growth. And I know that you, oh, yeah. you know, that's sort of a big piece of what you're talking about now. And the critique seems to be that personal growth efforts are just that. They're like very personal and self-focused yep. and can help someone feel good without really doing anything for the greater good. So I'm really curious, like, do you think that's ever the case, but also how you've been using that kind of getting together and talking and personal growth type work to really galvanize <laughs> what you're doing with conversations <laughs> against fascism. Yeah, great. So is it ever the case? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of personal growth work is not just about feeling better. It's also about being more effective or, you know, getting into action, clearing away blocks to action. And yeah, actually, you know, my, the business I used to have, my facilitation business, we had opportunities to do, do executive coaching and we would always say, no, the individual is not a lever, right? Only the group is a lever. And what I, what is happening here is for me, at least personal paralysis was making me useless, right? I basically for three years, I didn't do, I did almost nothing. And so finding hope and keeping sanity, it's not, yes, it's in some ways it's a, an end in itself. Like we are as activists, we deserve to be sane and it's yes, a means totally. to an end, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, like one of my, one of my workshops is called finding your own best leverage point. And we go through, we go through a grief process. We go through a brainstorming process. And at the end, people see what there is for them to do. You see something new and you see something that you actually can take action on. Whether in one case, there was somebody who attended who actually was homeless. And she like started off having all these fantasies about really huge actions that she wanted to do, but wasn't doing. And by the end, she realized, actually, the very first thing I need to do is get housing. And now she has housing. Now she can look again, like, what can I do outside, outside of myself? So that's, that's one thing. Another thing is we do is like 
a lot of in in the era I think this was true before, but especially in the era of social media, it's very tempting to express opinions and think that that's activism and to express disdain and outrage and be like, oh, that's Twitter reverse. activism. What's that? Twitter activism. Twitter activism, or activism or X, yeah. Whatever it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be called armchair activism, right? Yeah. Right. So now it probably could be called desk chair activism, but even, <laughs> yeah. And, a big thing that we offer is like, what if you get past those feelings of righteousness and self-justification and actually get present to the impact of what's happening in the world, then what, what could you do that would be more effective? Right? So don't, don't substitute and don't get seduced by being right because being right doesn't move anything. Right. So those are a couple examples. I mean, a third, yeah, I think this is even separate way that I bring in like emotional intelligence skills into activism is for like white allies who are working in the black space to be more resilient against in the face of getting feedback about, you know, how you're handling being an ally, unintentional racism, things like that. Like, so that people don't cause problems, you know, when, when their intention is to help. And also so that people don't take themselves out, right? Mm -hmm. Because if there's too much, if people experience too much defensiveness, then they'll leave the movement. So, right. yeah. So it's all about people bringing people to a place where they're stronger, clearer headed, clearer thinking and looking forward. Right. So that's, yeah. That's how it's like bringing the personal growth into, into the social action. Wonderful. And, and tell us a little bit about how it's going overall with conversations with, about conversations against fascism has been, how long has it been an official entity? Like a year and a half. Yeah. It's, oh, it's wonderful. Like just different. I mean, some people, some people, get involved who are not directly working on fascism. They might be working on environmental issues, environmental issues, building local economies, actually voter registration, which it, you know, it's related. And then, Oh, and well, yeah, this is still environmentalism, but like there's somebody who has a pagan community that she's trying to figure out how to have it be more environmentalist and more anti-racist. And, and not just about spirituality. And it's, it's just very wonderful because people, people just keep moving, you know, people move from stuck to not stuck. And sometimes it's just, sometimes it's just experiential healing. Like had one of these decompression calls when the Dobbs decision came down and one of the people who attended had had an illegal abortion in 1969 and was still carrying trauma about that and was able to actually let that, like put that down. And then there are people who are like finding new actions and getting into action. One person has started having regular phone calls with her friends who are on the fence politically to, you know, keep them from falling in the fascist pit. Right. And then that is very bold. Well, 
It's very much needed. Yeah, yeah, it's brave work. And, I think it's really, yeah. yeah. And um, that's the term. Thank you. Yeah. And we can't all do it. And she is really suited to do that. And then, you know, somebody took on doing a de-escalation training for people who are, are doing direct action in New Zealand, direct action. It was an environmental thing, but I think it's against like some, I think they might've even been blocking trains, which I don't know if you can block trains and not die, but like they were doing this very intensive direct action against an environmental degradation action by a corporation and she was training them to to not get thrown off by arguments so different pieces of things i'm still very interested in like creating a movement that is more creative yeah creating like really bringing together an anti-fascist movement that is coming from creativity and love and groundedness that can you know, build nationally and be in action and coordination. And I, I kind of feel like that's maybe going to be a second phase right now. It's much more the training and coaching at the, like, it may be individuals together in a space, but it's mostly individuals, not organizations and not full social movements yet. And very, I did one, actually, yeah, I did one retreat, planning retreat for a small town like just bringing together the existing activists and like, what if we're focusing on fascism? And it was really lovely. And with the level of the town's capacity, the things that came out of it were relatively small. There was like a voter turnout project. There was a tenants rights, a tenants union formed in, on, in one building. And then there's been like a little, a social queer group that's been having events every two months for a year. So, I mean, it's not, these are all things that weren't there before and it's not like, okay, now we're ready to change the world. Right. And that's, that's the next level. Nice. So it all sounds like very worthy work. It's really exciting to hear about it too. I guess my last question is how does, how would you say one can discover what their unique contribution to the world or to activism is? Because it sounds like you sort of, by just living and osmosis and change sort of came upon what yeah. is really clicking for you. Yeah, if I were to say, okay, um, this is an eight hour workshop. And, <laughs> and ah, there you go. <laughs> and there's a couple of tips, like really, like, really look at, I, there was a question that I was offered once in a, in a, in a workshop on what is your gift, which is what do people thank you for? And that is a way of just really looking. And that was on my mind when I, you know, did that first decompression call. It was actually called unfuck your feelings because the Trumpers were saying fuck your feelings because when they thought they were going to win that year. That's a brilliant name. I love it. Yeah, I loved it too. I realized that I was being thanked at a level that I never had been before. And that's how I knew I was in the right place. But it's just, it's like, it's a question to carry around because it's a combination of what you know you're good at and what other people notice you're good at and what's needed. But kind of looking around and yeah, it's an inquiry. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm like, I, I did walk somebody through this in, in 20 minutes once. So I know it can be done. But like, what's important to you? What are you good at? What do you have? Where are you positioned? Like, who's around you? 
what have you been doing and what haven't, what are you aware that you haven't been doing? Yeah. And it sounds like it takes, you know, it might, it's an inquiry. it could take 20 minutes, but it could take a long time to really look into all of this. Things, well, but that's a great start. Yeah. Great yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, I'm like, I don't have tips. I do have tips, but I don't have tips on like, I think I'm just hesitating because I'm like, well, I could give you some tips and they might or might not work. Right. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like looking at what do people thank you for? What's important to you? What are you good at? Where are you uniquely positioned? What resources do you have? What needs are really calling you? Actually, one exercise we do in the workshop is write down all of those things and randomly draw lines between them and be like, how is this connected to this? Right. So it was like, okay. I'm a facilitator and I have a lot of friends who are activists and there's a need to do something about fascism. How do those all fit together? Right? Cause it's not actually, it hadn't been obvious how they fit together. Oh, and look, I just learned how to use zoom. Right? So, so there's this creativity piece of just, you know, writing down all the things that could matter, right? All the needs, all the assets, all the, things you enjoy and then randomly drawing lines between them to see what you see is, is a way of like, that sounds like a done. fun exercise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. We'll make sure that people know how to contact you and hopefully we'll talk to you again. Great. I want to hear more. <laughs> thank you. Thanks Robin. Thanks so much. In our next show, I talk with Janet Coburn, who is the author of the books Bipolar Me and Bipolar Us, and we talk about the state of mental illness care in this country. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm going to sign out. So I'm Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. Uh, Mixcloud is mixcloud.com slash Robin Renee, I think. I should not <laughs> say that until I really know what the URL is, but uh, look me up there. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's probably all I want to say because I have too many social things right now, but that's me. Okay. Find me online. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Blue Sky at Vox Woman because I am not on X, I left. And on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. So until next time, be well. Unionize. And keep left. <laughs>You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>